Listener Production. A warning. This episode contains descriptions of domestic violence, stalking, and sexual assault. The number for 1800 Respect is 1800 737 732. As well, there are details surrounding infant death. If this affects you, help is always available at Red Nose Grief and Loss. Dial their 24 7 support line on. 1300 308 307. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This week one of the most bizarre murder investigations in Australian history. I always think that when we do a job, it's not concluding things. We're just providing answers to the victims and families and that as to what happened. Former detective Peter Seymour has dedicated over two decades of his life to the people of Western Sydney serving in the New South Wales Police as both a detective and police prosecutor. He's investigated almost every major crime, from homicide to unexplained deaths to a man stalking and harassing his own wife. Understandably, these cases have left an indelible mark on Peter. Before we get to all that, Peter shares the story of two cousins who were both married to the same man and who both died in extremely suspicious circumstances. I went out to the house a number of times and could never find anyone there. And eventually one afternoon shift, um, late one night, we were going past, just on spec, heading back to the station and I saw the light on. So we stopped in and that's my first meeting with her husband, Thomas Key, And it was one of those strange, eerie sort of feelings you get when you rock up to a place and you just you just have a, a particular vibe about it. And um, anyway, that night, he uh, couldn't give us any further information. He said she was alive. He'd spoken to her. Uh, she'd taken off with another guy and was living somewhere. He didn't know where. And then... As fate would happen, um, a couple of young blokes who had had too much to drink drove into the police car, our detective's car, parked alongside his house. So <laughs> we ended up getting into a scuffle with them and they got arrested and Thomas Key was our witness. He saw it all and ended right. up giving evidence in court. So it's bizarre. It is. It's a strange set of circumstances, my dealings with him. You say it started out as a, as a missing person's case. Reported by whom? Well, initially her family, and then Thomas Key ended up coming forward. The family, after a few days of her disappearing, reported him, reported her missing to Mount Druitt Police Station. But he, he didn't do it up front. 
as far as his story was, she'd taken off and that was the end of it. So she's still missing. Yes. And it's, I guess we could use it, it's like a cold case. She yes. hasn't turned up. There's been no contact, but there's also no evidence as to any foul play or anything such as that that could lead to an investigation. So we're, we're sort of things are in, sort of in... In a state of flux, really. In a state of flux. Yeah, because the family had no further information. They yes. were hoping, I suppose, that she was still alive. Uh, his story to them and to police was that she was alive. He'd spoken to her. He, he says that uh, she rang him at home a couple of times, six months after she disappeared, mm. wouldn't tell him where she was, just that she'd taken off with someone. And so that's the story that was being played out and the family accepted that. Young story. child involved, yes. three-year-old child, I think, that was yes. still in the custody of, of, of Kira, obviously, at that time. Yes. Yeah. So then we get to a point, what are we, about three years down the track, and uh, is it coincidence that he ends up meeting uh, a woman who's actually the cousin of his first wife? Did he know that? Well, how it all came about is Jean's mother still hoped that Jean was alive somewhere. And in her mind, if she introduced Keir to another woman and he had another relationship, she was hoping that this might somehow flush Jean out and make contact with him if she knew that Keir was seeing someone else. So at a, a family um, get-together, Christine introduced Tom to Rosalina, who'd come out from the Philippines for this family gathering. And he ended up following her back to the Philippines. They married over there. Uh, and then he brought her back to Australia. So they're back now living, married, back living in, uh, in Sydney. That's correct. They, um, they were living with Tom's parents out at Mount Druitt because Tom had a tenant in his house, uh, a lady who had a, a young son. And when he came back with Rosalina, they stayed at uh, his parents' place. And then one day the tenant complained to him about a, a foul smell coming from somewhere around the house that she couldn't get rid of and didn't know what it was. And he terminated their, their rental agreement and mm -hmm. got rid of them. And then it wasn't long after that, he went back to the house and uh, we are aware of him pulling up the floorboards in the hallway of the house and digging the dirt up because a um, colleague of his dropped in unannounced one day and saw him and said, what the hell are you doing? And he's said, oh, there's a bad smell here. I'm trying to find it and get rid of it. And what was it? In my mind, it was Gene's body that he was digging up. Right. Because what had happened after Tom had terminated the rental agreement of his tenants, he's then moved into the house with Rosalina. But before that, my opinion is, and I spoke to the Crown about this, that Tom's had to exhume the body that he'd buried under the house, this is Jean's body, and get rid of it before he could move in with Rosalina. So he's, you believe his evidence pointed towards him having exhumed the body of his first wife, and we're now, time-wise, about three years down the track. Yes. He's remarried Rosalina, first wife's cousin, and he's now moved back in, back into that home. They're married for about four years, and things start to go awry, is that? Yeah, right? I don't think it was that long. Right. Um, with both marriages, things started to fall apart fairly quickly. Right. Um, he was very controlling. Mm. Um, there's evidence from Jean's 
family and friends that he would alter a close if he thought they were too revealing. Um, family and friends in statements to us portrayed Jean as going from a, a very vibrant, effervescent, uh, bubbly young woman to someone who's very withdrawn. She'd often wear sunglasses and she was just a shadow of her former self um, not long into the marriage. And then she needed time away. She told one of her friends that she had to leave, but she was scared that Keir wouldn't let her take their son. So she went down the caravan park down the south coast with her sister and her sister's boyfriend just to have a week to herself. And uh, he came down a couple of days early and dragged her into the car and uh, said, you're coming back home. And then on the way back, they stopped at a service station and she went to the toilet, climbed out, and took off and went back to uh, Bondi to uh, a gentleman she'd had a one-night uh, stand with. That night, Keir contacted this gentleman because he was aware of the previous affair, and he'd actually confronted this fellow um, sometime earlier. Anyway, he rang him, and uh, he said, yeah, Jean's here, and told him to bring her home, which he did that night, and that was the last independent sighting of Jean. An extremely jealous man. I think you've said, uh, Peter, in previous interviews, even to the point of being jealous of attention that the son would pay to the son's mother. Yeah. It's and quite this, bizarre. Yeah, it was. It, Michael was only just a little baby. Yeah. And Jean, there was evidence uh, that Tom came home one day, Jean was in the bath, just had Michael on a chest and he didn't like it. You know, and it's a, the most natural thing in the world. Mm, mm. And yet, no, mm. uh, she wasn't allowed to have that sort of contact. So the first wife, Jean, said goes missing. All indicators, uh, in, in hindsight, that he's involved in, in that. He's now in his second marriage with Rosalie. That goes horribly, horribly wrong as well. Yes, it does. And uh, she wasn't allowed to mix uh, without him knowing and I say mix, mix with other people and uh, without him knowing about it. And I was at home actually um, about to start afternoon shift at three o'clock when I got the call a couple of hours earlier that there was a fire at this particular address and there was a female body found in that fire in the main bedroom and I was called in early. And on the way in, the, the address rang a bell with me and then all of a sudden it dawned on me um, who it was. And when I got there, I was expecting that it was, because I was told it was this gentleman's wife, Keir's wife, so I thought straight away it's Jean. Oh, that she's, have come she's back. come back. Yeah, because you've had no dealings with him for a for number a of couple years. For a couple of years. Yes. So when I got there and I said, oh, it's his wife, Jean, I was told, well, no, uh, it's not Jean. Her name's Rosalina. He's remarried. And that's when the alarm bells really went off. I bet. Um, they were already ringing. You know, yeah, of course. You know, if it was Jean, her body's there. If she'd taken off, had an affair, if she's come back, things might not have gone well again. Mm. But to then find out, no, he's remarried and it's his second wife. And then very quickly, uh, it became apparent that he was the last person seen entering the house and then leaving. And within about 10 minutes of him leaving, there was smoke and flames coming out from under the eaves. Um, no one else was seen going in or out of the property. He straight away was the, uh, the main suspect. 
So when you arrive, what state is the, the, the house? Are you able to gain entry at that point? You got the fireys there, the sort of the whole nine yards? There was uh, a lot of people there. Yeah. Um, the fire brigade were there, scientific were in attendance. There was a, a lot of police at the scene. And um, it was a little while before I went into the house, uh, once it was rendered safe by the fireys, to go in with scientific and look at the, mm. the scene, have a look at where the, the fire had been through the house, the body, and then I went back in a bit later on when the forensic uh, pathologist uh, arrived to examine the body. So you're you're a, a detective, mate. You've been around the block a few times. You're either looking at a bloke that's had some shocking, shocking bad luck and lost, innocently lost two wives, or we're looking at a bloke who's uh, is a double double homicide. That's it in a nutshell. So he would have been taken into custody shortly after that. You would have. Yeah, he was. Um, Detective Sergeant Mick Lyons was in charge of that. I'd spoken to Mick um, at the scene. We'd gone over things and a decision was made. Uh, Mick was satisfied that Thomas Key would be arrested mm. and taken back to Mandurah Police Station. And I said to him, I'd like to start looking back over Jean's disappearance because now that we've got Rosalina dead and yes. Thomas Key, the the main suspect for that, um, and he was ultimately charged with it. I was then naturally um, really concerned about what had happened to Jean. Jean's body, you believe, was um, exhumed from under the house. Was there any evidence to go back to that identified her as, as having been buried under that house? Well, when I started talking to neighbours, we got information from a couple of them that they'd seen Tom bury a lot of things in the backyard car engine, car panels, fencing panels, and also a 44-gallon drum. So that was the main thing of concern, had he buried her in that drum, and she was buried in the backyard somewhere. So we ultimately got a search warrant and got a backhoe in and dug up the whole backyard that we could reach with the backhoe. We found everything that the neighbours said they'd seen him bury, mm. apart from the 44-gallon drum. So when we looked at it, I thought, well, if he's buried all these things and buried a drum and if he's exhumed the body, which was the likely scenario based on information that we'd gathered, then the strong view was that he'd lifted the body up, put it in the drum and then got rid of the drum. Um, but there was a part of the property that we couldn't get to with the backhoe and that was down the western side of the house between the house and the fence. It was only a few feet. Too narrow to get the backhoe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was the second search warrant that ultimately found the seven bones in that area along the, the western edge of the house uh, alongside a brick pier and that was due to a prison informant coming forward. Um, see, when he was charged with Rosalina's murder, he spent uh, a bit of time in jail uh, on remand and in that time he uh, spoke to an inmate and told him that he'd killed Jean, his first wife, and buried her under the house. And that inmate told a second inmate who had an upcoming Supreme Court bail hearing and he, he took the opportunity to mm. put it on key basically as to what happened, which he did in the yard one day. And... Um, yeah, he came forward with the information that he buried her uh, upright alongside one of the brick piers under the house. So with that information, and there were there were things that this inmate said to me 
when I went and interviewed him at Long Bay Jail that uh, he could not have possibly have known unless yeah. he'd got yeah. that from Keir. Yeah. Uh, such as um, Keir saying uh, that uh, his first wife had rung him a few months after she allegedly disappeared. And that's something he told us, but that was never released, never divulged in mm. the media or anywhere. That was just known to us. And yet the prison informant told me about that. He said he initially said, oh, no, she's still alive, he said. But then when I told him what I knew, he said he, he had a cup um, with a, a drink in it. He said he shook that much, he nearly spilled it. And he said, I know what you've done. And then he walked away from him. Mm. And that's when he then, they contacted us from the jail. And, and as a result of information that you receive, you can now, what you do, a little bit more of an extensive search. And ultimately there was some, there were some, I think seven bones that, that, that were found that were linked through DNA back to, back to Jean. Is that correct? That's correct. Well, yes. because of this information that she was buried under the house, that's where the search then commenced. And the house is on brick piers and on the Western side, you had the, the piers were three foot maybe high uh, before you hit the floor. So you could get in easily under there. And then it tapered off to nearly nothing when you got to the eastern side of the house. So we started under the house on the western side naturally and the scientific went in and anywhere they thought the ground seemed to have been a bit different, a bit disturbed, mm. that's where we'd start digging. And it was during one of the uniform police officers was having a bit of a break and he was on the western side and he just started digging around one of the brick piers there and he, he was about 18 inches down and came across a bone. So handed it to one of the detectives there who then brought it to me. And I said, look, I don't know the difference between a human bone and a chicken bone. Mm. A bone's a bone. Let's get it bagged back, handed in the exhibit book and down to the um, pathologist. And it was the next day that that bone was confirmed as a human finger bone. And further DNA tests, I guess, identified who that was. Yeah, ultimately, um, DNA was carried out. Well, we, we eventually found seven bones during that search. And the first DNA testing was done. Um, I took them down to Melbourne. There was DNA testing done in Sydney. But back in those days, the early 90s, DNA testing in Australia, was in its infancy. Yeah, yeah. Um, we weren't real advanced in it. Mm. And down in Melbourne, they got a positive result, but they couldn't duplicate it. And the forensic pathologist down there told me, look, you really want the best on this, and America are the, the best, and that's where you need to take them. And so we were matching the DNA from the bones with blood from the parents. And the bizarre part of that story is that, uh, and we didn't know until we approached Jean's mum and said, look, we need blood from you and Clifford uh, as Jean's parents to test with the DNA we get from the bones. And she said, Clifford's not Jean's biological father. Uh, so Christine was pregnant with Jean when she married Clifford. He took Jean on as if she was his own daughter. Right, But as Fate would have it, Christine still knew where Gene's biological father was, and he lived in Sydney. We tracked him down, and he confirmed that, yes, he was Gene's biological father, uh, and he was happy to assist and provide a blood sample for the DNA testing. So Thomas West charged with two homicides? 
He was. He was initially charged with Rosalina's yes. and subsequently acquitted. Uh, during that process, we were still uh, investigating Jean's disappearance. Mm. So it was, wasn't for some years later after he was acquitted of Rosalina's murder that he was charged with Jean's murder and then subsequently went through three trials before um, the final verdict. Which was? He was guilty. Uh, the first trial before a jury, it was found that the judge had made an error in addressing the jury on how to interpret the DNA evidence. The DNA evidence was so intricate and uh, you're talking about percentages and ratios of, you know, one in 600,000 in the community matching the DNA. So I can see how it got miscommunicated. Yes. But still in all, it was grounds for appeal. So there was a second trial. And the the problem with that, you, you go through a trial of six to eight weeks, you get a guilty verdict, the family think mm. it's all over. Mm. Mm. And then all of a sudden you've got to go back to the family and say, look, I'm sorry, this has happened. A new trial. We could do it all again. You've got to relive this nightmare all over again. And that was difficult. Yeah. Uh, but we did. We went through the second trial. It basically ran like the first. And uh, again, the jury found him guilty of Gene's murder. But then... After the trial, some of the jurors were having a drink at the pub across the road from the Supreme Court. Defence barrister went over there too and heard them talking and spoke to them. And uh, one of the jurors admitted that he'd looked Thomas Keir up and saw that he was acquitted of Rosalina's murder some years earlier. Right. So armed with that information, he went straight back to the Court of Criminal Appeal. Retrial. Retrial. by jury. One. So we had a third trial. And in the third trial, it was before a judge alone. Um, yes. Again, the, the evidence basically ran the same. And yeah, um, the judge came back with a guilty verdict. Goodness me, what a long drawn out. So from, from when we believe that, uh, that Jean was, life was taken, we're sort of talking 88, 1988, thereabouts. Yeah, yeah 88, 89. Where are we now after after three or two aborted trials and a final trial to get a conviction? What what year are we? How, how far? 2004. 2004. Goodness me. Yeah. And he got, uh, got a custodial sentence? Yeah, he was uh, convicted uh, 22 years maximum sentence, um, 16 non-parole period, but he ended up serving the whole 22 years. Um, he'd make parole applications after the 16 years and they were always rejected. Peter, the next case we're going to discuss is, is particularly disturbing on a number of levels, not least of all the fact that it actually involves your wife. Are you okay just discussing this this case with us? Yeah. It um, was early in our marriage. We got married in 1985. I'd moved to Penrith Detectives in uh, 1986, and uh, Sue fell pregnant with uh, the first pregnancy around that time. And I was doing a lot of landscaping at our house. Uh, we were on a sloping block and I was doing a lot of, um, wanted to do a lot of bushrock landscaping, retaining and that. And so I looked up, I got a guy out of the local paper who had a lease at a property and sold bushrock and uh, ended up getting a couple of loads from him. 
And in hindsight, what had happened was that in working out delivery times when I could be there, uh, we just got discussing, you know, what I did and told him I was in the police. Um, and so what had happened is he would ring the police station at Penrith and ask for me. And if I was on afternoon shift starting at three o'clock, he'd ring prior to, uh, he'd ring, sorry, after that when I wasn't home, if I was on day shift and finishing at, um, five, uh, he'd ring around that time. And what it turned out, the second lot of, uh, rocks he delivered, he delivered with his brother and Sue was the one at home and she brought out drinks. It was apparently a hot day. I wasn't there. And for some reason he, he would start ringing her at these times when he knew I wasn't there and saying he was uh, watching her and that he was going to rape her and how he was going to do it and all these sorts of things. As it turned out, we found he was ringing from his girlfriend's home. And so we went through a process where Sue would have um, whistles and she'd just blow the whistle as loudly as she could um, through the phone uh, and it didn't deter him. But then he'd go weeks without ringing again. And so you'd just get comfortable thinking, oh, it was a one-off prank, Mm. some idiot. And then she'd get another call. And it really rocked her as it it would, you know, a a young girl, 22 years of age. Mm. um, She honestly thought that she was being watched because he knew when she was home and, and all that sort of stuff. At that time, Susie was pregnant. And during the whole course of these phone calls, she ended up having a miscarriage. Um, doctor said, look, she was really stressed out. And in my mind, um, that was a big part of it, uh, if not the reason uh, for it, um, what she was going through at the time. And as a husband, it's hard enough to see your wife dealing with this and not knowing how to fix it. But at least I was in a position in my career as a, in my job as a police officer that I had um, the ability to to do more about it than someone who was relying on someone else to do something. Mm. And the boss um, at Penrith, he gave me permission to work solely on that, put everything aside on the proviso that when the time came that we had someone uh, for it and we found who was doing it, I naturally had to step aside. Sure. And yeah. and that was a logical thing. Yeah. Uh, it had to be done. So, yeah, we uh, I... Went through everything. I thought initially, because Susie was a school teacher, it might have been someone from through the school. Went right through that, came up with nothing. In the end, I was able to get a listening device on the phone. We were able to track where the call came from. And again, that meant nothing mm. to any of us because, as I said, he was ringing from his girlfriend's house. Mm. And I got to the point where I was left with nothing more than to bring... The woman in, she was, um, I think, renting the house out there in one of the Mount Druitt suburbs. And she'd be totally unaware that this was going on, obviously. Had no idea. And you're still at this point, there's no connection that you're making at this point to this bloke that's been, that delivered rocks to your joint months and months before. None whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, so we were left with no other alternative but to bring her in. Mm. Calls are coming from her place. So uh, we brought her in. I was working at St Mary's Detectives at the time. Brought her in, interviewed her to the point where 
through my questioning of her, we established that the only male person that ever came to her house was her boyfriend. Mm. I then told her what the investigation was about and where's your boyfriend? And see, I knew him from the ad as Bob. She told me his name was Robert. And then still no connection at that point. At that time, still no connection. It's a name. Anyway, she uh, said, oh, he's at his grandparents' place. Can I go and get him? And I thought, well, that's good. I can buy a bit of time here. I said, you got a half an hour. Bring him in. Or we're coming to get him. And that way I was able to ring the boss, get another couple of the detectives back, and I briefed them up on everything, mm, mm. and they were ready to go. When, and you, um, could ste- you could step back at that stage. And, and I, I step back, step out of it, and leave it to them to do the interviewing. No doubt interested as to who's going to walk through the front door of the police station with her in half an hour, though. Well, the, there was four detectives uh, based at St Mary's at the time. So the, the boss, Detective Sergeant, he came back with his offsider. We had a chat, told him everything. He was right to go. And then we got the call from the uniform blokes that this Robert was here to see us. And I, when you came into the detective's office, I was sitting at a table to the left of the door. So as he walked through, he wouldn't have seen me straight away. But as he came through, as soon as I saw him, Penny That's- dropped. How long is it since he'd been at the house at that point? Maybe within a year or so. Right. Okay. But as soon as I saw so him, you saw him, I knew. The penny dropped. The penny dropped. Yeah. Robert, Bob. That's him. I know. And it all of a sudden made sense, mm, mm. the connection. Yeah. And I jumped up straight away. And I won't tell you the thoughts going through my mm. mind at that stage because mm. I had a wife who mm. had gone through that, that turmoil and suffered a miscarriage, and I was there when she was in Blacktown Hospital, and they were doing the scans, and we could see the the little fetus there, but no heartbeat and everything. And then that went from there, and the boss saw my reaction, and he just grabbed me, come out, mm. right? Up, what the hell's going on? And I filled him in. There's a bloke who delivered bush rock to us, so everything all of a sudden yeah, yeah. made sense. Yeah. So he said, right, leave her with us. Yeah, they went in, interviewed him. He made full admissions and was charged. Uh, yeah. But at at that time, because it was phone calls only, we could only charge him under the Telecommunications Act right. for making those sorts of phone calls. So right. there were a couple of counts of that that yeah. he was charged with and went to court on. As opposed to the, the the nature of the discussions wasn't really part of it. It was more misuse of a phone and all the sort of a fairly minor offence considering what it is that he was saying to your wife. I yeah, guess. look, it carried a maximum penalty of six months jail. Did, did he do a stretch? Did he? And he, yeah. yeah, went to Penrith Court. He pleaded guilty mm. on both counts, and he was sentenced to six months on both counts to be served uh, concurrently. So maximum sentence, I yeah, guess. Yeah, six months. Yeah, yeah, he was given the yeah. maximum yeah. due to the circumstances of what happened. Yeah, plus conviction. Yeah. 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 He ultimately appealed the um, sentencing and went before the district court at Penrith. And uh, I remember coming to the court, to the appeal, I was a bit like getting there because I had another court matter on that day. And I got there and as this guy was just finishing up his um, his own evidence uh, in his defence, uh, saying that my wife had ab- abused his younger brother who had, I don't know whether it was a form of autism or something, mm. um, but yeah, that was his 
his reason for doing what he did. Mm, mm. And you know, I, I was filthy of it. That is so far from the truth. Mm. All Susie was doing was bringing them out drinks of water and yeah. looking after them. Yeah. Um, and I said to the DPP solicitor, I said, this didn't happen. You need to call me to rebut this. And he, he said, don't worry about it. He said, I can tell by uh, the reaction of the Judge Collins that yeah. he's not accepting anything that was yeah. being said. Yeah. Anyway, I said to him, you better be right. And we sat there. The judge said he was taking 15 minutes off the bench to consider his um, the submissions. And when he came back on, all he did was, was really give it to this guy and called him a coward. And he didn't accept anything that he said. And even if he did accept it, there's no reason to do the things that he was doing. Mm. And, um, he said to him, and I'll never forget it. He said, the only consideration I've given is to whether the, to make the two six month sentences from the learned magistrate, uh, to be served cumulatively. Uh, so one after the other. Yeah. Or, or concurrently. Yeah. 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 Uh, so straight away, this guy was now staring was at, looking at 12, 12 months, months instead yeah. of six, Yeah, but the judge decided to leave it at what the magistrate had, mm. uh, sentenced him to. I mean, it's, it's awful. You can't change what happened, but I suppose that's the best result you could have asked for. Uh, that's right. Yeah. It's, uh, at least it gave us answers. Yes. And yes. I'm often asked about when people say, oh, it gives a final conclusion to families. Um, I always think that when we do a job, it's not concluding things. We're just providing answers to the victims and families and that as to what happened. It's not over. Like no. Jean and no. Rosalina. Their memories live on, yeah. uh, so yeah. it's not over. It's yes. not finished. All we did was get enough evidence to enable them to know what had happened. If we've got somebody listening and going, okay, what would I do if, if I picked up that phone and, and I was receiving those calls or I felt that somebody was following me or stalking me or outside the house? Peter, what, what would your advice be to any women listening in? Report it to police and be in a position as best you can to give them as much information as you can. If you've got someone, say in this case with this, this guy ringing my wife, as best you can, a description of the voice, whether it sounds like a young person, an old person, even some things like if they have a bit of a stutter or anything that may assist the police uh, down the track. Because I've been involved in many investigations where there was a, a series of rapes on, on women and the four victims, there were four victims in it, uh, they all said the same thing. The offender wasn't circumcised. So information like that, it might not sound or seem important or relevant at the time, but it's vitally important to police. So any any information over the phone that you can, if you hear a particular noise in the background, but you need to report it. And if you're not comfortable going there on your own, tell someone straight away and get them to go with you. So don't think that there's nothing that can be done. Don't don't think, oh, I don't want to bother the police. Don't think this won't be taken seriously. Look, I think I can speak for the majority of decent police. They would much rather hear about something like this before it sort of escalates than afterwards. That's 100%. You made a decision to step away from frontline policing, away from the, uh, the you know, the round-the-clock roster, and you stepped across into, I believe, police prosecutions. Is that right? Yes. It was in 1992. I was at Penrith Detectives. And I had it in the back of my head because uh, I've got three daughters, 
They were all young and it just felt right that I needed to give my wife and the kids a bit of a break from the shift works and things. And I was in the office one day and I happened to see an old detective mate who had gone across to the prosecutors, walking down the corridor to the prosecutor's office. And it just dawned on me, well, that's a natural progression for me to go to the prosecutors, nine to five, Monday to Friday, spend more time at home, um, you know, with the family and give back to them for everything they've had to sacrifice. And so I made those inquiries and to cut a long story short, uh, the boss supported me. He understood the reasons why. And um, I ended up in 1992 uh, joining the police prosecuting branch. And you got to the point where you were a cro- uh, coronial prosecutor. Is that is that right? You just explained that role? Yes. Um, after two years doing general prosecuting work in the local courts and children's courts, um, I was sent to Westmead Coroner's Court one day to help fill in. And I went there and just enjoyed that jurisdiction. The coroner's court is not an adversarial court. It's an inquisitorial court because the coroner is wanting to find the truth of what's happened. And the coroner deals with both deaths and fires, suspicious fires, suspicious deaths. Where it's a suspicious death, be a homicide or a suicide, then there'll be an inquest. And so as a prosecutor at the coroner's court, you're the sergeant assisting the coroner. It's not an adversarial thing, Mm. but you're assisting the coroner. You've worked directly at the court with the coroner. You've gone through the brief. You've, in those days, we'd read the brief. We'd put a recommendation to the coroner on whether an inquest needed to be held or whether it could be dispensed with. So you have a very close working relationship with the coroner and it's just presenting all the evidence. There's rules of evidence that don't apply. Like people can give opinions in the coroner's court where they're prohibited unless they're a professional mm. um, in the local courts and the other court jurisdictions. And I just found it very interesting. So I went there in 1994 and I was there for six years. So after six years as a stint uh, police prosecution plus in the coronial environment, you returned to frontline duties in 2000. And uh, you're very much uh, in the deep end. You're involved in a, a violent homicide investigation in the western suburbs of Sydney. Yeah, it was 2000, uh, around June, July, um, I'd been approached earlier by Detective Sergeant McLyons, who I work with in the Keir murder, and we'd always kept in touch, we were good mates, and he uh, rang me one day at the coroner's court and said, have you ever thought about coming back to uh, the detectives? He said, we've got a spot out here at St Mary's. And I thought after eight years in the prosecuting area, the kids had grown up, and uh, I thought, yeah, maybe it's time to go back to it. And so I spoke to Susie and she said, look, you, it's your career. I'll support whatever you do. So I ended up back at Samaria's Detectives and um, it's one of those things, you be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> Talking to me, we're having a cup of coffee in the back veranda early in the piece. And uh, I said, oh, I need, my, need a good investigation to get myself back in the swing of things after eight years. I need a good murder or something, uh, you know, just as an off the cuff, yeah, you know, yeah. bit of a joke, really. But yeah, be careful what you wish for, because it wasn't long after that. And I wasn't even the on-call detective uh, this night, uh, but I got the phone call in the early hours of the morning that there was a, a body found on Memory Road at St Mary's, the main street, and um, looked like a possible homicide. And um, I was called in. It was pretty, uh, pretty nasty one. The body was there. It looked like a potential 
assault um, because he had some grazes and cuts and, and some bruising to his head. And uh, he was on the corner of Memory Road and um, Edgar Street uh, at St. Mary's. And there was nothing around. And we had street lights. Memory Road's the, the main road that runs through to St. Mary's. And we had absolutely nothing other than this body uh, with some head injuries. So I called the scientific out, normal protocol. I got the forensic pathologist out. And it was funny because to get a post-mortem carried out on the weekends, um, you got to get approval from the coroner for the pathologist to carry it out. And so... You'd have had a few contacts there, I'd imagine. Well, yeah, <laughs> the, the coroner... At the time, Jan Stevenson, uh, I worked with her closely um, at the coroner's court for the last uh, couple of years, and she was the one that was heavily involved in the care murder um, by calling the homicide squad in and um, basically demanding that the bones be taken over to America. Because the coroner runs that investigation. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, the police do uh, the investigations on behalf of the coroner. So I, I rang Jan's mobile. The first thing I did was apologise to her for the time that I was ringing early in the morning. And as it turned out, she was on holidays, unbeknown to me, and she was over in France. Uh, she said, I'm having croissant and whatever. She said, what have you got? And anyway, she gave the approval to call the pathologist. It's a classic example of, of you're a detective, you're on the scene, there's a deceased body on the side of the road, a fairly busy road, the west of Sydney, Mamre Road, what for all accounts looks like a, a, a homicide. It's, how do you go from there? to identifying offenders and, and, and getting a case like that into court. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of plates that are spinning there, a lot of things that need to come into play. There sure is. It's uh, At that time, we had no information to go on. It's um, half past one in the morning. There's no one around. It's mm. quiet. First thing is you've got to identify the deceased, which mm. we were able to do. And it turns out he was only 250 metres from home. Once we identify him, we then have to look at his movements. Where had he been? Where was he going to? Um, and who had seen him? All those sorts of things. So, and the first thing that came to my mind was uh, at that hour of the morning, there wouldn't be too many people around. Where can we find CCTV? Mm. Around the corner is the St. Mary's Band Club. Up the road was a mobile service station. Alongside that, an RSL club. So straight away, they were the targets to go and see what CCTV they had at the time to show who was potentially around at that time. So we, we did all that, and it was actually the CCTV from the service station that uh, showed up the two persons responsible for it. So Nick Haynes, who's the victim of this attack, You'd be scrolling through all the CTV footage, and so you see him walking past. He's picked up, is he? Uh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't him that was picked up. Right. He'd actually, we'd we'd actually found through the investigation that he'd been down to the band club. Yes, he'd had quite a bit to drink. Mm. He'd also been down to the local pub near there. The, but then we found that he called into the local pizza shop near the club. Uh, on the Great Western Highway there. The guy there knew him quite well mm. and said, yeah, he was here. He said and he'd had quite a bit to drink and he actually fell asleep eating his pizza. And I sent him on his way. He said, Nick, you've got to get home. He was the last person to see him. Right. But what we, we did a media interview because we had no witnesses, nothing. And out of that 
media coverage, two young witnesses, two young boys came forward. They were actually walking home. Uh, they'd got a train home. Um, I think they were around 17, 18. Mm. And they were walking along the road on the opposite side to where Nick was walking, but in the same direction as him. And they both said, and we interviewed them separately when they came forward, that two young blokes approached Nick at the corner and they couldn't hear a lot of what was said, but it seemed to them that they assaulted him and one of the witnesses heard uh, mention of a wallet. Mm, mm. But um, at the scene, we did locate Nick's wallet and there was still a bit of money left in there. So we didn't think robbery was really a motive right. at that time. But when these witnesses were interviewed, one of the boys said, did hear them say something about, get your wallet. Right. So straight away we had um, descriptions. Yes. And these two suspects were like chalk and cheese. One was a tall, thin, bleach blonde haired, Caucasian male. The other one was a lot shorter, black hair, and was of Islander appearance. Okay. And their clothing was stood out. The um, Islander person had dark dark jacket and dark clothes. The other guy had like a light-coloured tracksuit with mm -hmm. a stripe on it. So we had fairly distinctive descriptions, although they didn't get to see their faces. But the two boys, um, they said that uh, when this was all happening, the I think it was the Islander fella turned around and looked at them, and so they took off. They oh. thought, oh, we're going to cop this too. So mm -hmm. they took off. And it wasn't until they saw the media coverage uh, a day or so later that they realised that's what they'd seen. And they came forward. And they came forward. Their Jeez, parents what good, contacted What good us. lads, huh? And I mean, they're crucial to an investigation like this, aren't they? They are. They yeah. are. And was it from there with a timeline you could go back and piece it together through some CCTV footage and that type of thing? Yeah, well then, uh, that's where the CCTV footage was invaluable because mm. now we knew they came from the direction of the RSL club and the service station as opposed to anywhere mm. else because the two boys said they were walking, approaching Nick. So we trawled through all the CCTV from around that time, half an hour or so beforehand, and the CCTV from the service station was very grainy. It, it really wasn't good quality. Mm. But as I'm going through it, all of a sudden these two blokes stand out. They come into the service station. Mm buy something and then out they go. And from the descriptions of the two boys, that was them. And quite, because there's two of them as well, very distinctive in how different they were. Even though it's a grainy image, it's enough to, there's no doubt yeah. this is who it is. No doubt. Yeah. Uh, the clothing matched, the yeah. description matched because it was yes. you know, chalk and cheese. And then the timeline fitted uh, from getting from where they were at the service station to when the boys saw them with Nick. But then... That's all we had. We still didn't know who they were. Mm. Couldn't mm. see their faces. The The grainy footage was terrible. We, you couldn't see their faces on that. So then the decision had to be made. Do we potentially burn one of the two boys by getting him to come in and positively identify the two offenders from that footage? So from a point of court evidence is concerned, um, to push them along that line of saying, oh, have a look at this, mm. potentially could wipe them out as a, as a witness because they're doing the identification that way. And I spoke to the homicide. They suggested I err on the side of caution and not do it. 
end up speaking to the Crown Prosecutor's Office at Penrith. And although they really can't give us a, that sort of advice, the inference was probably, again, they're on the side of caution. But mm. me being who I am, thought, no, I've got nothing else. I'm going to do it. Uh, then I had to decide which one was probably the better one to keep for court, yes, who I thought yes. would, would stand up better. Yeah. And so I got the other guy in and my boss at St. Mary's, uh, he backed me a hundred percent. So we got him in, I gave him the warnings and said, I just want you to look at this. And if there's anything you see that you need to tell me about, I'll stop it at that point. If not, we're mm. all good. And so I, I let him in probably at least 15 minutes or so maybe uh, beforehand. Mm. I didn't start it right at that time mm. because I wanted him to see other people moving sure. in and out of the service station. Yep. And when it got to the time, because there was a time frame on the screen where they were going to come into view, I particularly watched him. And then all of a sudden when the, these two offenders came into view, he just leant forward at the screen and he looked at it and he said, that's them. Bang. Got and him. pointed at them. Yep. And without blinking an eye. Mm. So I let the, roll through a bit further until they walked out. And then I got a statement off him, positively identifying him. And as it turned out, uh, the way we did all that, that was still admitted into evidence. Mm. The Crown Prosecutor said it was probably a really good decision right. to do it that right. way. Right, yeah. And so you've identified through the two witnesses and CCTV footage visually who those two offenders are, but you now have to identify who they actually are. That's where the old footslog detectives work comes mm. into it, mm. talking to people, rattling a few cages and getting people to talk about it. And then all of a sudden there was a phone call to Samiris Police Station one day from an anonymous person giving us a name of the taller blonde haired okay. guy. Yep. And that was it. So then came the situation of trying to find who that informant was. So yes. we did phone traces around the time the call was received at St. Mary's and we came up with a, about eight or nine phone calls that came in around that time. And Murphy's Lawyers would have it. It was the, the very last one I went to. As soon as I knocked on the door, this lady opened the door and I identified myself to her. And she said, I was wondering how long it would take <laughs> for you to come and see me. Mm. I said, you rang the police station. She said, yes, I did. I said, I need to talk to you. She gave me the information that she had and where she'd got it from. Mm -hmm. I then interviewed those people. They confirmed everything. And yeah, that's how we ultimately, through just word of mouth and yeah. people coming forward, yeah. Yeah. Um, putting it all together and yes. uh, interviewing them. And then we did search warrants at the two offenders' houses simultaneously, split into two teams, and both persons were arrested. And, and charged with homicide? Charged with, charged with murder, yeah. um, with a backup charge of manslaughter. Mm. And motivation robbery at the, at the end of it all, do you think? Or just, just two blokes who saw a drunk bloke and started to... The second scenario. Two, yeah. They came across him yep. and had words with him. He was yep. drunk, so yep. whether he actually he said something, said something yeah. back uh, and there were a few punches and kicks thrown. Mm. And the, the other twist to this is when they did the post-mortem, they found that uh, Nick had a really bad heart. So he was a ticking time bomb really with okay. his heart. Right. And the pathologist said to me, look, he could have died at any time, really. Mm. And I said to her, but for evidence for court, 
if he hadn't have been assaulted and we, he had all those marks and that he was built around the head and that, mm. if that hadn't have happened, he may very well still be alive today, albeit with a bad heart. Mm, mm, mm. And she said, that's, yes, that's correct. So mm, mm. with that information, that forensic evidence gave us enough to be able to charge him with the murder. This is a case, Peter, am I right in saying that, that that brought up a few issues for yourself around that time? And this is, you know, you're now 20 years in the job and a lot of blokes uh, and, and women who have sat on your side of the desk have said, you know, it's like that, it's that water dripping into the bucket. It just keeps filling up. It just keeps filling up. In a nutshell, yes. And you're doing that investigation. You've got a lot of pressure on you. Families are looking to you to find out what happened. And to find the offenders responsible, there's a lot of pressure on police in, especially murder investigations, and you do feel that pressure. Uh, but in between time, you've got other jobs you're working on. Mm. Around that time, I had was involved in uh, an investigation of a, a little missing three-year-old, and ultimately she was found in the backyard pool, but they'd scraped the pool initially. The pool hadn't been cleaned, the filter hadn't been running for all winter and that, and mm. the water was just green. You couldn't see in. Yeah, yeah. When I came into that investigation, they said they'd, they'd uh, scraped the pool, there was nothing in it. So we had a missing three-year-old. After a couple of days, I got them to go back through the pool. And in hindsight, uh, and this came up in the debrief, what I should have done was drain the pool straight away. Mm. But hindsight's a wonderful thing. Uh, I was going off what I was told. But we drained it again, and that's where they came across the little one at the bottom of the pool. And um, I was there when we recovered the body, sat with the parents. They had to do the formal identification. Things like that catch up with you. Yeah. When I was younger and single, you'd go through and do jobs. I've, I've been lucky to get away with uh, a couple of incidents where I walked past a guy who had a big carving knife at a break and enter. Why he didn't use it on me as I walked through the door, I don't know. Another one, the guy early hours of the morning grabbed my partner's gun and I was on top of him trying to reach around to stop him from pulling the trigger and then my partner reached down and I could feel his hand twist around and he said, don't pull the trigger, son, because gun goes off, it's going through you. And I'm thinking, hang on, I'm on his back. It's going to go through him and through me too. So I've been lucky. I've got a way, you know, got away with it a couple of times yeah. um, with my life. But you don't think about it too much then. You have a bit of a chat about it as we did in the old days and have a couple of beers and it's dealt with. Mm. But then when you have your own kids and especially my experience at the coroner's court, seeing everything that I've seen, how people die of, you know, suicides, pool drownings, things of that nature. Yeah, that bucket started to fill up pretty quick. So 2004, you're thinking I'm done. It was actually 2003 yep. um, where I broke down and I was heading to work one day and stopped at a set of lights and yeah, I just broke down. Just I, hit you? Yeah. Out I, of nowhere? Yeah. Out of nowhere. Um, I could have just driven and kept driving, not caring where I was driving to. I just didn't want to go to work. I ended up going to work, but it was at the debrief for the pool drowning I just spoke about. An old work colleague I'd worked with in the police back in the late 80s, he'd become a psychologist and he attended the debrief and he gave me his card. He was local to Penrith and he said, 
mate, you can't keep doing this line of work. Come and talk to me if you ever need me. And it was probably only oh, 12 months or so later that I broke down and I pulled out Mark's card and I rang him. I said, I need to talk. And he said, look, come in, we'll have a half hour chat. Just, you know, see how things are. And I made that appointment, went and saw him. And it was about two and a half hours later that I left his office and he told me you're never going to make the work again. And that was it. That was it. 12 months later, technically I was still in the, in the police while the paperwork was going through, uh, February 2004, I was uh, medically discharged. Right. And I had to see a psychiatrist, a specialist in between times. Mm. And I went and saw him, went through everything. And that, that's when things from the past do get dredged up. Mm. And it just gets on top of you. And uh, this psychiatrist said, I've, I had symptoms of a Vietnam veteran. And I said, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> you know, those poor buggers have been in a war zone, mm. been shot at, shooting. But he said, it's the death. It's the constant death mm. that and, you've and, been subjected to. And over 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he said, that's what it is. Because I'd be waking up around three o'clock every morning. It's like a switch goes on and you wake up. Sometimes I get back to sleep. Sometimes I wouldn't. Um, the nightmares and the worst nightmares were ones involving my kids in scenes I'd been to, like train fatalities and car fatalities, but my kids would be the victims and I'd wake up, uh, it'd be the middle of winter, but I'd wake up sweating mm. in a lather of sweat and I'd wake Susie up. Mm. And, she, and again, this is the flow on effect. Yeah. It's not just the person going through it, but it's their immediate family and that, that see what's going on and have to deal with that as well. Since leaving the job, you've penned a couple of true crime books. No, no better opportunity to tell us perhaps just a little bit about those because both of those cases that you've been kind enough to speak to us about today were the subject of those two books. Yeah, the the first one is called Seven Bones because that's the number of bones that we found of Jean's body under the house. And I never intended to write the book, but it was a coroner that convinced me to write about that. And I had a few goes at it and put it away, but then I thought there's got to be a reason to write a book, mm. apart from it being a bizarre investigation. And then it dawned on me one day driving home that it was a domestic violence murder mm. and what these two women were subjected to shouldn't happen. And that gave me the motivation to write it. I thought if it helps someone yeah. with uh, the Nick Haynes murder, the publisher said, look, the Seven Bones book went so well, it touched a chord with a, a lot of readers. Can you do another one? And I thought, well, what would be the reason for, for that book? Because it wasn't, it, it wasn't an investigation that had the twists and turns of the Seven Bones investigation. In other words, if I open up and talk about what was happening to me uh, and the post-traumatic stress and the effects on the family, then that's probably a good reason to write that book. Yes, mm. it's about the murder, but intertwined in a, around that murder investigation story was what was going on personally. Yeah. And I thought, well, if that can help emergency services people that may read the book or other people, family members that say, oh, I can relate to that or, you know, my husband or wife or family member, yeah, I can see changes in them along those lines. Well, then that might help them. Yeah. And that was a reason. All of a sudden I had a reason to write that book. Did you find that that 
assisted you and was in some ways it's probably the wrong term therapeutic for yourself to to, to process that and to put that down into writing uh, I get asked that quite a bit and uh, whether it had a negative effect on me or a positive effect and really not one more than the other mm. um, as I said I, I suddenly had the reason to write it to put it out there um, that was all I needed to put it together and then once I got invested in in writing the story and putting in what was happening to me to make it worthwhile to me, it just sort of flowed from there. Mm, so mm. it didn't, didn't, uh, cause me a lot of grief, mm. uh, put it that way, no more than what I've, I've been through. And I suppose, you know, I continue to go through, still mm. have the nightmares and still wake up every night. It's just, uh, something that I, I accept and I, I know what's happening. There are times where you can never pick what may trigger it, where, yeah, I, I know I'm just not myself. You know, mm. you, you get quiet, things upset you. You know, I, I've got a pool and over the grandkids come over and they play in the pool. And But I look at what can happen if they're not being watched. Mm. I see that side of it as opposed to kids having a great time in the pool. And it, unfortunately, that's just the way things are. And just on that, Peter, you, you're almost 20 years out of the job and we're sitting here and you're saying you're still nighttime waking up still those nightmares and, and, and still those times where you're, you're reflecting back on that stuff that happened now nearly 40 years ago. Yeah, it doesn't stop. Yeah, it doesn't go away. There is no cutoff point to it. It's You've been through it. You've dealt with it. You, your brain, your mind knows it's happened mm. and any single thing you might might be something on the news. It might yeah. be something you see. Yeah. might be a person you see that brings back a, a memory and subconsciously in the nighttime um, that's what happens. This is the thirtieth chat that I've had with uh, both serving and past police from all around Australia, and uh, this has been one of the most enjoyable chats that I've had. And 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 I just and I know um, from feedback that we've had from other interviews that there will be so many folks who listen to this who will take so much from what you've what you've been so open and honest about, you know, telling us that diving into those cases was 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 amazing. But also your honesty with regards to the price that you individually and others pay. And uh, I just want to thank you, Peter, for coming in. I want to thank you for being so open and candid and and also, you know, for that 24 years of service to the folks of Western Sydney and for putting what we've spoken about into print. And I know that many people listening will pick up and, and run with that as well. So um, just thanks so much. And, uh, and I know a lot of people are going to benefit from this discussion. Thank you. No, it's my pleasure. And um, I've spoken about them a few times at different forums. And uh, to me, it's all about getting that message out. And if it helps someone, then that's a win. Fantastic. Thanks, Mark. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly. Link Kelly.